Hello, and welcome to your short history of time. Here is a summary of the Earth in two minutes. Ready? 4.6 billion years ago, the Earth forms, and it's hot and terrible and oozy molten rock, and it's like that for quite a while, until it cools down and gets crusty, and then it rains for millions of years. And then 3.7 billion-ish, well, we're not quite sure, we get the first tiny single-celled thingamabob, and then it goes along like that for ages, and then some of the thingamabobs learn how to photosynthesize. And this is a mess because everything else isn't okay with oxygen in the atmosphere, so then they all die off, but then new things evolve, and then we get multicellular life and well look we've kind of fast forwarded through that bit and we're in the Cambrian and it's 540 million years ago and they call it the Cambrian explosion because evolution kicks off and things are getting way more interesting now and we've got these big lizards but also kind of maybe mammalian giant things and they're beating up on each other and now it's 250 million years ago and well almost everything dies yep it's the greatest mass extinction that the earth has ever seen but some things do survive and here comes evolution ticking along again and now we have the dinosaurs and they were having a great time they're super very loving life ruling the world and boom dinosaurs are dead now too so we're at 66 million years ago evolution begins again and this time spins off in a distinctly mammalian flavored direction cute small furry things becoming diverse and plentiful and in all kinds of shapes all the way up to apes all the way up to us and then farming the wheel the industrial revolution the internet you me today Phew. And that's your short history of time. Welcome to the second episode of This is Science, Expedition 378. I'm Claire. Honestly, deep time boggles my brain. I find it really difficult to think about millions of anything, never mind millions of years of time on a planet that's ever-changing, and about life that is constantly evolving. And on this time scale, like, humans are such, such a tiny little blip. We have barely featured so far. When we think about ourselves in time, or at least for me, I tend to focus on recent human time. This is what I can wrap my brain around, you know? Like, the present, the short-term past, a little bit into the future. Surely my brain is adapted for this human time scale so that I can live my best life, or at least survive and pass on my genes. But now I'm on a ship surrounded by people who seem to be able to do this. Like, they just drop these massive amounts of time. They can think in in millions of years or tens of millions of years and they just drop them into conversations, you know? Oh yeah, that that was between 66 and 56 million years ago. And I'm like, that's 10 million years. You just talked about a period of 10 million years. It took humans 6 million years to evolve. You know, and that's longer than that. Like, how do geologists get their brains to wrap around these amounts of time? Is it is it something that comes naturally to them? Or is it part of the training? It's sort of it's sort of a new way of hu- for humans to think in a very recent amount of time, right? I mean, 
they only really figured out that Earth was old, maybe a couple hundred, I don't know exactly when, but like 150 years ago. So if you think about, not only have humans existed for not very long, but we haven't been thinking about deep time for very long. And so it makes sense that it's very unnatural, right? Because we humans existed in smaller groups of people and that was their world. And if you think about um, the whole planet evolving over <laughs> inconceivable time, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, and it's also something that's not really, um, at least in the U.S., it's not taught in primary education very much. Um, I didn't have an earth science class except for when I was maybe 12, um, no high school level earth science. So it's not something that we're learning how to think about. Um, it's not really valued as a skill set or a perspective. Um, and I think it should be, I think it, I, I think it helps to put things in perspective a lot. Laura Haynes is a postdoctoral researcher in Rutgers University, and she's one of the scientists on Expedition 378. And she just, she seems to thrive off learning what happened on the planet a long time ago. So I was a geology major, an undergraduate, and I started off as sort of an environmental analysis person. I wanted to study environmental issues and climate change, um, but then I took a class in geology and I was sort of blown away by what you can learn from studying rocks. Like you can look at a rock and tell where it came from, how old it is, what life was like when this rock was deposited. And I found that in reconstructing past climate change, I could tie my interest of the mod what's happening today to, you know, looking at the geologic record and deciphering these histories, these puzzles that are in the recorded in rock. So that's sort of how I got into this this field in general. Yeah. So in tying these two things together, Laura's interested in using lessons from the past to help inform what might be coming for us in the future. And this is the key objective of Expedition 378. Expedition 378 uh, is drilling into the seafloor on the southern part of the Campbell Plateau to recover sediments that span the geologic age of about 23 million years to about 67 million years ago. We care about this age range because that this time period spans the most recent time in geologic history when Earth's climate was very warm and very warm in a way that uh, is predicted for where we're heading as a planet within the next century. So it's it's critically important that we we learn from the geologic record how the dynamics of the ocean and atmosphere operate during during fundamentally warm climate states. Debbie is the dean of Texas A&M Geosciences Department, and she is one of the co-chiefs of Expedition 378, along with Ulla Roll. So this means that she would have first put forward the proposal um, to the International Ocean Discovery Program, saying, like, these are the objectives of the expedition, this is where we want to go, this is how old the sediment we want to recover is, um, and why we are doing this. So in terms of how old the sediments are, you know, that um, 66 to 23 million years ago, well, how geologists break up time is pretty interesting. 
they break it up based on specific events that they can see in the rock and fossil record. So big global events divide the main eras. So like from the intro, the earth cooling from a molten hot mess to something recognizable, that's a big global event, divides up an era. Or, or the mass extinctions, you know, again, huge global events, they're seen everywhere, they divide up some eras. But these eras, they're like hefty chunks of time. A large wedge of the time pie, if you will. Um, smaller slices of time are called periods. They're also divided by global events, but events that are not as dramatic. Um, within the periods, and stay with me here, uh, geologists divide time into smaller slivers called epochs. Now, they're also bookended by some kind of worldwide happening that has been recorded in the rock and fossils. So in general, what we get is bits of time bookended by notable events, which, and I got to be honest, mostly mean bad things for whatever was alive at the time. So the long title for Expedition 378 is South Pacific Paleogene Climate. So what is the Paleogene period? And what is it divided into? The Paleogene is an interval of geologic time that spans the Oligocene, the Eocene epoch, and the Paleocene epoch. And so numerically, the Paleogene is the interval of time spanning 66 million years ago, right? So the, the, the lower boundary of this is the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. And the Paleogene extends from 66 million years ago to 23 million years ago. So for this expedition, we want to look across the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, which was the end of the dinosaurs, through this Paleocene, Eocene, and Oligocene epochs to the end of the Paleogene period. The big question is why? Why is this period interesting in terms of climate? Yeah, so the Paleogene witnessed the evolution of Earth's climate system from a very warm climate state where we likely had little to no permanent ice at, at either pole. Going from that very warm climate state uh, with a, a, a relatively gradual cooling, but that gradual cooling was actually punctuated by several rapid global warming events. So in order to understand transient events, events of rapid climate change, you still have to understand the background climate state, what happened before and what happened after, because that context is critical. Without the background context, the change is, is very difficult to interpret and understand. So the first major one that we're, we're um, interested in is called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, and this happened about 56 million years ago as the best-known example of rapid global warming in the geologic record. There are several smaller but equally interesting events between 56 million years ago and about 40 million years ago, um, and we refer to these as Eocene hyperthermals. And then about 40 million years ago was an event known as Mid-Eocene Climatic Optimum, which was another transient warming event. Um, but a warming event superimposed on a climate trend that was well on its way to a cooler climate state. And then another major event that we're really interested in is the Eocene-Oligocene transition, 
In contrast to these other events that we're talking about, which were rapid global warming events, the Eocene-Oligocene transition actually marks a rapid and profound global cooling, which also coincides with a, a major buildup of ice on Antarctica. And so this event um, nominally is known as the, the big transition from a fundamentally warm climate state to a climate state that's still pretty warm at this time, but can support permanent glacial ice on Antarctica. And so that's really cool. And then the remainder of the Eocene and Oligocene, which takes us uh, to the end of the, the Paleogene, is characterized by fluctuations in the amount of glacial ice and a general, uh, a, c a continued cooling trend. Okay, so a lot going on during the Paleogene in terms of climate. Warm conditions, rapid warming, cooling trends, ice sheets on Antarctica. Every scientist that's on board Expedition 378 would have applied to sail because they have a certain skill set, but also their own specific questions related to this big overall objective. Maybe they want to know what the winds were like, what the sea temperature was like, what this meant for ocean currents, was there any volcanic activity, what happened to life in the oceans. So, continuing on from her work during her PhD, Laura is interested in looking at ocean acidification specifically. So in my PhD, I studied these little creatures called foraminifera, and they are little um, plankton that live in the surface of the ocean, and they make shells out of calcium carbonate. And that mineral, calcium carbonate, is the same thing that chalk is made of. Um, and so these creatures, they live in the ocean, and when they're growing, they record the chemistry and the climate of the seawater that they grew in. And so these they're sort of like our little paleothermometers back in time. And we don't have temperature measurements from, you know, 50 million years ago, but we have foraminifera. And so in my PhD, I one of the big things I did was grow foraminifera in the lab. So they still exist today. And we basically simulated an acidifying ocean. So we pumped a bunch of CO2 into their seawater, and we determined how they responded and how the chemistry of their shells responded. And so that helps us to understand how much acidification occurred in the geologic past. So one thing that we have recovered is the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. This is an event in the geologic past that has been studied a lot, and that's because it is the closest analog that we have to modern climate change. So during this time period, there was a lot of CO2 released in the atmosphere. Um, we know it got a lot warmer. And for a long time, we've been trying to understand what caused it, how big was it, and what can it tell us about what's going to happen in the future. So with a new record of this event from the site that we've collected, I'm hoping to reconstruct ocean acidification across this time period to understand how much CO2 was released, and how it affected this very southern high-latitude site where we are. So where we've drilled is really close to Antarctica, and high-latitude oceans are very susceptible to ocean acidification. So combining what we know about the chemistry of the ocean with the biological changes, so we have people on board who are interested in coccolis, who are interested in other plankton and how they responded, that should give us a really good sense of how ocean acidification affects the ecosystem. 
Now, you may have already heard the term of ocean acidification because it's something that's happening today as we introduce more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Laura explained to me exactly what it is and why we should care. So what happens when you put CO2 in the atmosphere, for example, we're burning fossil fuels, some of that CO2 goes into seawater. And that's just because it's a gas and it dissolves in seawater. And the really important thing about CO2 is that it doesn't just dissolve in the seawater, but it reacts with seawater to form an acid. So CO2 goes in, it forms an acid, and then that acid leads to ocean acidification. And so the reason that we care about the ocean being acidic is that when it gets more acidic, there's less of the building blocks available for marine creatures to live and make their shells. So for example talked about foraminifera, they use this ion called carbonate ion. It's basically like um, if you take an Alka-Seltzer tablet, it's what neutralizes the stomach acid. And so these little creatures use those ions to make their shells. And if there's less of them, then they can't grow. And that has huge implications for the functioning of ecosystems in the ocean, fisheries, um, and basically the health of the global ocean system. Um, So basically... The acidity of the ocean is directly tied to how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. Now, during our discussion, when I was talking about how I find the concept of deep time, of thinking in long periods of time, difficult, um, one of the things that Laura likes in the way of her thinking as a result of studying geology is this concept of timefulness. The idea that you can think on long scales about the Earth and that this puts into perspective the rate at which we are using resources that took a really long time before. If you can understand, if you can think on these long time scales and think about this is how long it took for oil to form, this is how long it took for the topsoil to form that grew my food, and then you think about how quickly things are changing today, it gives you such a different perspective on the magnitude of change that we're inducing. And I think it's really hard without learning geology to think on that time scale. And I think learning those things really changes the way you see yourself and like human civilization on the planet. And you can sort of get a bigger sense of like everything that supports human life was formed over millions, millions of years. Um, so that's one thing I like to tell people about <laughs> because I think it helps to give context to what we're doing today. Because... This is one of the key issues today, the pace at which we are burning through fossil fuels. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of different things about this. So the earth has been a lot warmer in the past. When the earth was a lot warmer, there were palm trees in the Arctic, right? It's not the world that we know. It's not the world that we were adapted to, you know, exist in our society, Um, In terms of the climate has changed in the past, and is there evidence that we're doing this today, it's it's truly unequivocal that humans are causing what's happening today. So just because there was climate change in the past doesn't mean that humans don't have the ability to change climate. And in fact, everything we know from the past has taught us that we are perturbing things in a way that nature rarely, if ever, does, right? So, you know, over long time scales, the cycle of carbon in the world is is pretty well regulated. And basically what humans have done 
is dug up a bunch of carbon that should be sitting in the ground for millions and millions of more years, and they've chucked it into the atmosphere. And so that has created a huge imbalance of, um, of the system that is basically there. There's nothing, there's really few other, no other things that could change climate that quickly um, by pumping that much CO2 into the atmosphere so fast. Over, you know, when we think about geologic cl- climate change, we're often thinking about, especially with these really, really big events, thousands of years, when we're thinking about anthropogenic climate change, you know, 150 years, it's you can't even really reconcile the two time scales. And so while deep time is really useful, it also is really important to remember that these case studies are really best case scenarios because they happened a lot slower than what's happening today. The carbon cycle that Laura refers to, this is one of Earth's systems that operates on a long time scale. So carbon is transferred from the air to the ocean into animal shells that gets transformed into rock and then that gets taken into a volcano where the rock is degassed and the carbon dioxide is released back into the air. And this happens over a very long period of time. And, well, we're disrupting this. Like, rocks that contain oil wouldn't usually see the atmosphere for millions and millions and millions of more years. But what we're doing is speeding that up super fast. So we're taking all these really ancient things and exposing them and burning them. And that's adding CO2 way more than would naturally have been done by, for example, what happens is you take these ocean rocks, they go under a volcano, the volcano basically degasses them out and burns it up. And so we're like a million super volcanoes, like jacking up the CO2 burning process a lot faster than it would be otherwise. And the Earth system has all these really fascinating ways of sort of regulating itself, which is crazy. Um, for example, if on long time scales, let's say you burn a bunch of CO2 in the atmosphere, on really long time scales, the Earth is going to take that carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the rocks because there's mechanisms in place to basically self-regulate. Um, so on 100,000 years, 100,000 years from now, a bunch of the carbon that we emitted will slowly go back into rocks. But the issue is that we need to get it out of the atmosphere sooner than that. Um, And so, you know, people are thinking about ways to sort of speed up those reactions to get the CO2 out of the atmosphere. turns out it's really hard. Um, But sort of when you think about, yeah, the carbon cycle, it's like how are humans pushing different levers and um, what are the consequences for the people that live on the planet? So even though we've only been on the planet for the equivalent of a blink of an eye for the geological timescale, we're having a massive impact on these global Earth systems. Actually, so much so that um, people have proposed a new name for the geological time that we're in now, the Anthropocene. Because instead of like the evolution of photosynthesis or massive volcanic eruptions or meteors hitting, the major geological force of today is us. But the big difference is we're aware. The short answer of what we need to do is stop burning fossil fuels. But with a world already committed to some degree of warming, we need to figure out 
what will happen next? Maybe the answers from these sediments will give us some clues for what is coming. How will Earth systems respond to higher levels of carbon dioxide? What might happen in the Pacific to ocean currents and sea temperatures and acidity and ecosystems in years to come? There is a team of scientists on board, each asking their own specific questions about these past climate change events in an effort to help advance our knowledge so that it can help us in the future. Asking these questions, that's what science is all about. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Science, Expedition 378. I'm Claire Kincannon, a Science Outreach Projects Coordinator at Otago Museum in Dunedin, New Zealand. This podcast is brought to you by the International Ocean Discovery Programme and especially the Australian-New Zealand Consortium of the Programme, who are supporting me to be here. Thanks also to GNS Science New Zealand and Otago Museum for their support. The intro music was created by the amazing Molly Devine. Check out her new music on Spotify. And the audio beds were created by the super-talented Perry Hyde. Thanks so much, Perry. The sound effects for the short history of time were sourced from zapsplat.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word about it. Tell your family, your friends, your pets, your neighbours, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next one. You can find out more about the Geordies Resolution and Expedition 378 at www.geordiesresolution.org. See you next time. Kakiteano.